Hello and welcome to the Human Factor Podcast, a series of conversations discussing the topics and themes influencing the world of work today. My name is Michael Esau. My name is Simon Humphreys. Our guest on this episode is Gethin Naden. Gethin is an award-winning psychologist who has been helping some of the world's largest organizations to improve their employee experience and well-being for more than two decades. In 2023, he was named as the world's most influential HR thinker. As a frequent writer and speaker on employee experience and employee well-being, Gethin has been featured in Forbes, The Guardian, The Huffington Post, The Financial Times, as well as all major HR, reward and pensions publications. Gethin has been named as one of the world's top global employee experience influencers in 2021 and 2022, an IW Inspiring Leader 2021, and a finalist for UK Mental Health Campaigner of the Year 2023. Gethin is also a regular keynote speaker, ex-chair of the UK government-backed Engage for Success Wellbeing Thought Action Group, a wellbeing advisor to investors and people, a fellow at the RSA, and a member of the All-Party Parliamentary Committee, on the future of employability, frequently meeting with and presenting to members of the UK Parliament. In 2018, Gethin published his first book, the award-winning HR bestseller, A World of Good, Lessons from Around the World in Improving the Employee Experience, which has gone on to inspire HR and reward teams at some of the world's best-known brands. In 2022, Gethin co-authored his second book, Das Menschlich Büro, uh, The Human Office, a collaboration between leading academics and workplace professionals from across Europe. And in late 2022, Gethin published his third book, A Work in Progress, Unlocking Wellbeing to Create More Sustainable and Resilient Organisations, which reached the top of the UK bestseller list on its day of release. As part of the book's global launch, Gethin went on a tour of the UK and Ireland with Ruby Wax OBE to highlight the importance of supporting mental health in the workplace. Gethin, Welcome back to the Human Factor Podcast. Our inaugural guest has returned two and a half years later. Thank you so much for returning as a guest. I can't believe it's been two and a half years. You guys are podcast professionals now. You've had some big high hitters on this podcast. It's been yeah, great to listen to. I wouldn't be I wouldn't go as far as professionals. I think we're still in the amateur status, but but we've learned a lot, Gethin. When we set out, we wanted to learn, we wanted to share, we wanted to get insights, we wanted to create a community, and it's gone pretty well. So today we're talking about well-being, and we've almost coined it as well-being 2.0. So let me just put the episode in context, and then we can dig in then and, 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 and get started. So we've spoken on the podcast on a number of occasions about well-being. Our very first episode, as we just mentioned, was dedicated to the topic. And since then, we've touched on the return to the office and also financial well-being. But where does well-being go from here? As a concept, well-being has been around for a long time. Employers have offered various benefits and initiatives aimed at improving employee well-being. The pandemic indeed shone a light on this. And in the immediate aftermath, a lot of attention was given to the topic as employees returned to work. There were different approaches adopted, incorporating reinvigorated legacy offerings, as well as new offerings. There were cultural differences both in some industries and also geographies. But in recent times, we have seen debates and sometimes diktats that employees should return to the office and their well-being should be more than a bowl of free fruit at reception. But how well are those offerings now adapting and what will future offer? So we're delighted to welcome back Ethin to pick up where we left off in episode one and delve deeper into this vital area to understand what has changed, how we've improved, but where do we still have barriers or blind spots? And it's interesting, Ethan, I think, because since Simon and I wrote the episode, we've probably been reflecting a little bit in terms of what does well-being actually even mean today? And Simon was rightly challenging me saying, well, I think that's probably probably understood. But the fact that I was sort of sitting here thinking, well, is it? Because is it just the programs that we run or is it the type of leadership models that we're now developing? Is it a culture where compassion lies at the heart and empathy lies at the heart? So what what are you now seeing today, if you like, in the market with regards to well-being now that the pandemic is sort of somewhat in our rearview mirror? Are organizations reverting to what they used to do? Or do you believe from all of your conversations that 
a new brand of well-being is evolving? So I think there's a few things you've just said that I think are really interesting. So first of all, one with all the conference talks I do, and I do tend to do about 100 a year or so, I do get asked quite frequently, how are we defining employee well-being? So I would argue that for lots of people, they have different definitions. And so there, and there is no global universal agreement of what well-being is, let alone workplace well-being. So I think that's a fair question for us to keep asking ourselves. I think to set the scene, I think if we go right back to the start um, to understand where we are now, you talk about well-being 2.0. I actually think we're probably on about well-being 5.0. And if I tell a little bit of the story, kind of how I understand this, uh, if we take a look back at workplace well-being's origins, we can see that wage caps in the US in the 1940s brought in health insurance to the workplace. And I think that began a, a pretty lifelong relationship between employee well-being and the organization that they work for. How health insurance at work in the US in particular started is likely the same reason why I think well-being will become even closely tied to the workplace in the future. So we saw as the US came out of the Great Depression that hiring ramped up and with so many workers still overseas post-war, it became a pretty competitive job market and wages began to climb and climb and climb, exactly as we're seeing at the moment, and that fight for talent raged. And so while all that happened in the US in the 1940s, as I wrote my latest book that came out in October last year, there were two jobs available for every job seeker. So employers were having to work harder than ever to attract and retain people in America in the 1940s to protect the economy, the National War Labor Board stopped employers from competitively raising wages by introducing a wage cap. But health insurance was exempt from that. And so the IRS decided that employer contributions to health insurance were tax-free. So to attack the best and the brightest at that time, employers began to offer health insurance as a reward, if you like, on top of wages. And as a result of that, I think in 1939, you had about 8 million Americans having health insurance but by 1952, 92 million did. So within a short space of time, it just became inevitably tied to the workplace. And that was, I think, the start of this 70-year relationship our well-being has had with the workplace. And I think the pandemic influenced us just in the same way as the Great Depression did in the Second World War by forcing employees to offer more over and above pay to support the lives of the people and to attract the best people. And as you kind of moved on from the 40s and 50s, by the 1960s, employee assistance programs became widespread in most countries. But it wasn't until the end of the 70s that there was this big perceived shift in responsibility for health from the government to the employer. And then by the mid-1980s, we started to see this evidence emerge that showed the cost of poor employee health to an employer. And then by the time we got to the 1990s, governments around the world started to encourage employers to do more to invest in the well-being of their people. And so if you fast forward 10 years then to the run-up to the pandemic, I think it was pretty clear that there was this obvious proven link between health-promoting behaviour in the workplace and overall company success. But it took the pandemic for this to really reach the masses and subsequently investment in an understanding of workplace well-being, I think, advanced by another decade because of the pandemic itself. And so now in 2023, whilst almost every employer now, I think, understands the value of investing in the well-being of their people, this new problem we've created is a $53 billion corporate wellness market that's burgeoning with every month that goes by. You know, there are more than 1 million health and well-being apps on the various platforms available worldwide. But if you overlay the graph showing the support available to employees, and you were laying over the top of that the graph showing employees' general well-being, they go in different directions. You'd expect the more support that was available, the less problems people would start having. But they're both just going up. And We've never had so much support for employers and employees, yet the problems aren't diminishing. They're actually getting worse. So the data we have backs up that employers see their role in employee well-being. They want to and are doing more. But I think the new problem is how do we navigate the smoke and mirrors that surround this growing industry? And everyday employers I work with around the world are trying to find that evidence behind even some really common and popular workplace well-being tools to find out who's telling the truth to discover who wants to help or who's just in it to make a quick buck and that is part of the definition and the choice is leading to this new confusing and this new kind of well-being 5.0 as i called it it's interesting you said there the more support is not necessarily translating into better results and i think there's been evidence that throughout time you dilute it don't you much has obviously changed within the workplace experience and again simon and i were debating that some people think you should, everybody should go back to the office. I think it was Jacob Rees-Mogg who had that mandate. And I think others have been sort of working out their strategies. We talked with John Amici and 
Harrier Green about culture and John was talking about the fruit bowl and all of this kind of stuff, you know. And But what areas then do you believe we are seeing some progression or we are seeing some improvements? Also, where are those barriers still coming up? So I think the free fruit in the office analogy has been used quite a lot by people to kind of talk about what workplace well-being isn't. And I think we're now actually, from all the customers I deal with, pretty far removed from that. I, I think people understand that they need to commit more and do more for well-being. I think there's still a big problem at the moment with this kind of this like poster attitude, as I see it, towards workplace well-being, where people feel like if they say the right things, if they put the right posters up, if they send the right emails they're somehow actually going to create this culture of well-being or a culture that supports well-being. And there's some really good examples of big companies around the world where, you know, a lot of people refer to this now as well-being washing, where actually they say all the right things, but they're not actually doing the right things. So you can say this is the kind of culture we've got. This is how we train our managers. This is how we value it. But when it comes to the individual circumstance, actually, what are you doing to help? And I think maybe we'll come on to this, but you and I have had our own kind of well-being challenges over the last 12 months, and, and maybe we can pick up where that disconnect might be with some employers. But I think one of the biggest challenges I see, and I consult with large global employers you know, every year, um, literally hundreds of them, and I think one of the biggest ones that they're struggling with, and certainly at board level, is the shift in influence from employer to employee. So regardless of the economic conditions, we have a workforce that is less patient and less willing to put up with corporate bullshit than ever before. The, the great resignation was just the start of this trend, and that, again, was buoyed by the pandemic. And it made people really reflect and think about life and work, the impact of work on their lives, how much of their life they wanted to give to work. And I think lots of people, millions of people thought, if this was it, if this pandemic ended it for me, was I happy with what I was doing it and who I was doing it for? And why am I giving eight hours a day, five days a week to a company that when it came to the crunch wasn't there for me and I didn't feel like they cared? And if you look at the majority of those who switched jobs during the pandemic, according to LinkedIn data, they moved entirely to different industries. So record numbers of people saying that they quit because of their mental health and record numbers of people quit without another job to go to, which we hadn't seen yeah. before. So people are just saying, this is, it's not enough. It's not worth my mental health. I'm leaving. And if I need to sign on to state benefits before I get another job, I'll take that risk. And I think for the first time, employees began maybe, yeah, maybe for the first time, really en masse putting themselves first. And I think for some employers, that's become a, a really difficult pill to swallow because they aren't used to losing control and power in this way. And I think that's been reflected in the many high-profile CEOs that have hit back at this movement and that balance of influence. And part of what you mentioned at the start, the hybrid working debate, is part of that. People working from home, we can't control as much as when they're working in the office. Yeah. And so those forced mandates, I think, hark back to an era of, of work that we thought we'd lost. And I think this movement, I, I predicted back in 2016, my first book, I, I thought this would happen. I thought that we would be more focused on the employee and their experience at work and, and think about the employee as the consumer of those different experiences we have at work. And I built a theoretical model back then during the first few months of the pandemic that showed how I thought people's strategies would change to put the employee at the center. And to prepare for that, I looked at loads of employee people strategies from different companies all around the globe, and they all looked really similar. And they were designed for the employer, not the employee. So they outlined an employer's relationship with and their approach to their people, very transactional. People were the responsibility of HR only. They were seen as a cost. They weren't seen as creators of value or revenue generators. And the people focus was really just about attraction and retention. And then that future I envisaged happening from 2020 to kind of 2022 is now actually happening. Most companies are designing their people strategies around the employee, which includes how they value well-being. And they now see employees as primary stakeholders and their people strategies owned by lots of different departments. They see that people are adaptable, that they're an investment. They have good decision-making. These are all valuable features of a workforce. And they also see employee well-being as being critical to staining those operations. And so I was quite pleased to be able to prove in early 2023 that for the first time since they started measuring it, Edelman found that the employee is now considered to be the primary stakeholder in the success of an organization, more important than shareholders, investors, and in many cases, customers. But I think the barrier to this, this is huge change. And I think in many ways, it's a societal shift because we're seeing this. Yeah. We are starting to value people in a very different way to what we did pre-pandemic. And I think 
lots of those employers who are struggling with that are risking a kind of recession, regression to the old days where, again, those recent decisions and statements by some well-known tech CEOs harks back to this era of corporate governance and leadership that I think has fallen out of favor with employees. And I don't think we, can, we can't let ourselves lapse in this way, at the very least because it's expensive. But thankfully, the likes of Amazon and Tesla, who became, in many ways, kind of poster children of how not to treat your employees who work for you, they are changing and they're giving in to the demands of those various stakeholders to change for the better. And so I think, again, these investors are putting pressure on big companies to say, you've got to create a better culture. You've got to look after your people. It's not sustainable uh, to treat people in this way. And the business roundtable, a group of about 200 large CEOs in America representing Walmart, Johnson & Johnson, Apple, all these big businesses, they've changed their statement of purpose. And they basically said, we need to put the shareholder needs on parity with employee needs. So we can't continue to put shareholders and investors first. We have to put employees first. And the number one recommendation they gave to all their members now um, in early 2023 was you've got to invest more in your people. You've got to look after your people better. So it's a massive statement, isn't it, to say, you know, you've got to look after your people better, but that's a ma that's not that's not easy. Sam and I often sort of look at these conversations as peeling back the layer of the onion. So you, you peel back one, it says you've got to look after your people. Okay, well, the next question is how? How do you do that across a whole organization? And then you come to culture. Well, hang on a second. That's not easy to shift either because you're shifting behavior or you're shifting mindsets and they're not easy. I'm sitting here sort of reflecting and trying to make a link, I suppose, getting that there's a so what in all of this. There's a so what to the employee and, and that, that, that pendulum has, has shifted. There's a so what now to the organization in terms of being being sustainable. And it's about where is that tension point? I think we talked about in the first conversation that the employee value proposition went out of vogue, but it's now yeah. obviously coming back. It's much more central because the employee, you know, the, the prospective person wants to look and go, well, is this an organization that I think is inclusive, that I, I, I can grow, I, I'll feel valued, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the proof's still in the pudding, right? And now you, you made a point today that people were leaving in the pandemic and saying, that's it. I'm not putting up with it. What are we seeing, though, on the ground that is potentially, though, showing that difference? So, for example, right, I, I look, for example, all the time. I'm a customer of Timpsons. I just love what they do, their commitment to people, uh, the rehabilitation of offenders, giving jobs to people who come out of prisons. Today, any uh, employee who has a child attending school for the first time automatically gets a day off. Now, for me, that that is an organization centered around its people, caring for people. At a sort of a, a micro level, are there things like that that are impressing you today? Are you still seeing these little things that make you go, oh, yes, there's visible change? Yeah, and I think that example is a really good example of what I, the kind of example that I think I would give. I think when it comes to workplace well-being, it's far less about what you do than it is about kind of how and why you're doing it. And I, again, I'm lucky enough to judge lots of different award ceremonies and things as well. And I've, I've seen charities with zero budgets do more for their people than a FTSE 250 employer with a huge budget. And although, you know, I work with employers of different sizes across multiple industries every year, I don't think I could create a template of what I think every employer should be doing. And I get asked that quite a lot is what should I be doing? But, you know, the resources available to you, what's going on in your industry, you know, there are specific well-being challenges from one industry to the next. So we know construction's got a huge problem with the number of people taking their own lives. And so, you know, they've got more pressing challenges than, than other industries. And and so there's no one template that works for every organization. But what I would say is that organizations with high employee well-being, they do things like they take a view of short-term reactive and long-term preventative measures. So they think about how do I help somebody who's in crisis now? But how do I also help them with something that's coming down the line in the future? So how do I actually help them prevent a poor position of well-being in the future? And that's that's really difficult to do because you're trying to get an employer, people like me are consulting with employers, trying to get them to do something now to prevent this thing that may or may not happen in the future. And that's a hard yeah. thing to invest in. But generally speaking, those employers will communicate very well with transparency and regularity. They will listen to what their employees act on and what they say to them. They'll recognize employee effort regularly. They will help to buffer against and protect employees against the worst things that life can throw at us. So illness, care and responsibilities, debts, 
they'll have the right kind of benefits or mechanisms or initiatives in place that offer real tangible kind of life support. I think they will see their managers and who own and manage the teams, they'll see their success as being determined by good employee well-being. So managers will understand if I take better care of my team, that will produce better results for me and the company. Um, and they're also pretty good at health promoting behaviors. And so they use those to create this culture of well-being where they do things like link well-being and performance. So employees place a higher value on looking after their own well-being and themselves because they see their health as part of organizational success. And that gives people this confidence to step away from work when it's too much to know I'm not performing my best today. I need to go for a walk. I need to go and see my parents. I need to spend time with myself. I need to do whatever it might be. You know, that list I've just given you is mm. not stuff you can go and buy. But if I sit in front of most employers I work with and say, what's your approach to employee well-being? They'll read off a list of things that they've bought. Um, yes. And this is where it's like, it's not going out and buying a collection of things. It's you change your behavior, changing the structure of your organization to better serve the well-being of people. Some things I've seen recently with the customers I work for is, and this is a huge one, and this actually costs money, but buying every single employee, regardless of seniority, fully paid health insurance for 6,000 people. Huge thing to do. But they're basically saying, I want you, I want your experience at work with me to be so compelling and to support you so much. Leaving is not an option because you leave, all these benefits go with you. I've seen employers give employees additional paid time off for care responsibilities. That comes in by law next year for, for the UK. But other customers I work with allow employees to choose their national holidays based on their cultural religion. So 24-7 businesses can obviously do this really easily, but they decide what bank holidays are. They decide whether they have, whether they celebrate Easter or Eid or Christmas or Ramadan or something else. They help to remove those barriers, like the cost of getting people together regularly. So when we're telling everyone you need to meet up and we want these teams to spend time together, we're saying, look, we'll pay your hotel and we'll pay your train fare because we know you spending time with other people is good for us and good for you. And they'll obviously do all these things that can maybe help employees save money, especially relevant at the moment. And so I think well-being is far more to do with the micro-level things that employers can do than it is with those large gestures. And it's not about a collection of stuff. It's about understanding and supporting the lives of the people that work for you by making sure that first and foremost, work isn't negatively impacting on people's lives and that work becomes a force for good. Absolutely. I want to come back to that health insurance for 6,000 employees. I have a question on that. But before I do, Simon, I'm sure you have a few thoughts. Yeah, and I'm loving the conversation so far. I think we've been talking a lot about the employer and the employee, but I wanted to sort of draw into this about the manager. Yeah, the line manager in all of this. So we recently talked with Sheila Walsh. Uh, She was talking about inclusive leadership. uh, And she was talking about not having empathy, but compassion. And I think that's incredibly important because I think as a manager, these well-being initiatives have to be lived and breathed by the manager because if they're not, they they can just be initiatives for the sake of initiatives. So what are we looking for then from the manager? We're looking for that ability to listen, to observe, to react compassionately. And sometimes these things are are not there. I've worked in my past for companies that have all of these wellbeing initiatives. And I unfortunately had to avail myself of them for around six months. And then I came back and the first conversation I had with my manager was, right, you're on the promotion track. You're going to have to do this. You're going to have to do this. And I was just thinking, whoa, (laughs) yeah, I've just come away from work. This is a totally inappropriate conversation because there was that lacking of any sort of concept of, you know, what had happened over the last six months. It was back to business, crack on. You've got to, you know, tick all these boxes. And I I just think that the manager themselves has a a hugely important part to play in this. And and not just the manager, but peers who you work with can also observe, listen, react compassionately. So I don't think it's always just this nominal employer and employee. I think everybody has to live and breathe it. Would that is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know I th- I I found the reason why I think employers should be linking well-being with performance is because you then inherently see that if I'm a manager that cares, if I'm a manager that takes time out to get to understand the people that work with me to give them time to spend time with them, I'm not seeing that as a distraction from my goal. I'm seeing that as part of me getting to that goal. I mean, a great example I, I heard off a customer recently was about a high-performing employee that started to perform really badly. 
And after a period of time, their manager approached the HR team and said, look, this person has not been performing for a while. The performance plan is them out. It's time for them to go. And that HR team, it was actually a well-being lead, said, but they performed really well for years. It's like, what's going on? We need to find out what's going on. We can't just write these people off. And they did investigation. They spoke to this person. Turns out this guy was going through a divorce and he hadn't handled it really badly and was needed some mental health support. So they decided, well, let's get in that mental health support and let's see where we are. This guy was in and out of work for kind of six months, but then returned full-time, recovered from that terrible thing that he went through. Within about 12 months, he became one of their best-performing senior managers. And they used that as an example, which was the easiest thing to do was to write this person off, but we didn't. And back to my earlier point about seeing people as an investment, they had protected the investment they'd already made, they put more money into it, they speculated to accumulate, if you like, and then that person meant they created something that was better than what they started with, because that's what investment does, right? You you buy a house, you do it up, you decorate it, you make it nice, you sell it, it's worth more than it was when you got it. And I think we do the same thing for our employees. Uh, yeah, and I think you're right, Simon, like, we, we don't get to do that unless our managers fully buy into this and understand it. And, and there's a whole separate thing there about how you actually how do you recruit and retain the managers that are displaying those right behaviors so you actually recruit people who are leaders who are empathetic and can deal with people and coach them and lead them as opposed to those who just have tenure or technical ability it's a forever changing context and landscape isn't it i mean simon you gave your example there i think for me i became a father of twins in 2009 and i really struggled with the change and uh, and it got quite serious for me and i remember my gp saying you need to stop what you're doing and take two weeks out and i was petrified to tell my manager absolutely petrified and that fear was justified when i did tell her and she said right okay fine well you need to make sure everything gets covered and nothing falls beneath the cracks while you're away and you have to do all of that before you go and it's like whoa now when we wind the clock forward and one of the things i wanted to just recap on is the pandemic People reevaluated. I think people came closer to mortality. I think people were more aware of their parents and that gap. I mean, my, my mother was very ill during the COVID crisis and I couldn't see her. And it killed me. It absolutely killed me. And that's time I'll never get back. And it left a mark. It's made me ponder a lot that, you know, the context is the context of the context and it completely shifts all the time. But to Simon's point, for me, when I think about well-being today, the biggest thing I think about is not the support structure, but compassion. It's the biggest thing that I need above, above anything else, because I don't think anybody that's struggling with their mental health chooses. We were talking to Gabby Logan earlier, in this, uh, earlier this year about midlife, and I've struggled with midlife. I'm very honest about that. And, and life's challenges get in the way. You know, we've had some real difficult ones and I've only just returned now after being away for three months. But the level of compassion shown was so high, amazingly high and incredibly supportive. And when you're feeling rubbish and not in a great place, that meant way, way more than a blanket of, of programs. So I think that point about compassion and, and you're right, Simon, the role of the leader and and this is why I was alluding to earlier on. If you if you linking this into culture or org change or things of that nature, every person managing a team is part of that change. That's yeah. that's significant. The comparison stuff is really interesting because if you look at most workplace well-being or workplace research, sorry, over the last ten years, empathy keeps coming out as a core leadership trait and a core hireable trait. And then any argument or debate about AI at the moment, empathy cannot deliver AI anywhere near. Uh, the level that a human can. So all of a sudden, yeah. we're like, we need more empathetic people. We need them for our customers, our partners, for our people that work internally. You, you think about empathy and sympathy and compassion comes into this as well, is we can all feel sympathetic for somebody. We can yeah. all kind of put our arm on their shoulder, tell them that's a horrible thing and it shouldn't have happened. But when you talk about what empathy is and what compassion is, it's you're then following that with action. You're changing the way you manage that person. You're putting things in place to better support them. So what yeah. you're trying to do is you're not just acknowledging there's a struggle, you're trying to do what you can to get that person out of that struggle. And sometimes yeah. you can't, but you can say, but I can take that little bit away, which you know, removes a little bit of the weight. And exactly in the example that you both shared is then understanding that when somebody's returning to work, that can itself be a really sensitive time. So we're not overloading people. We're not telling people, okay, yeah, you can have the time off, which is quite sympathetic. 
but then telling you you've got to do all this work and handle them and all this that suddenly starts to become okay well actually that's not really um empathy there that's just it's quite performative right so i think that's really important i think we need to do that and i think one of the, the things I talk about and my own personal well-being struggle over the last year has been my mother's. My mother got diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I don't feel like I am old enough to be having a mother that has Alzheimer's. Yeah. She's in her mid-70s, so it's still a little bit early for her based on most people. Uh, but I've really struggled with that. I've really struggled to be there for my dad and the and everything that kind of comes with that, the guilt and the shame and all this kind of stuff that happens when you've got that. When I told uh, the CEO of the business I work for, he said, you do so much for us whatever we can do for you. We'll pay for a second opinion. We'll buy specialist equipment, take whatever time you need. And when my dad, when my dad went to see a consultant for Alzheimer's to get some advice, I told my dad to say that to the consultant. Cause I was like, if there's medication that is a trial or anything, we could do that. The yeah. consultant welled up because they've never heard of an employer doing that for an employee before. Wow. And I've been with this business for 12 years. The job I do is quite rare to be salaried. Right? People don't speak at conferences and write books and be paid full-time salary and so people always say like why aren't you a self-employed consultant why aren't you just doing writing books for a living because then my life would be worse off than if I was working for this business and I genuinely believe that and so that's what I'm trying to get every employer to do so in your circumstances I'm trying to you know if we can have more employers that just do those kind of things do the right thing make sure that they they act with the compassion and the empathy that we need people to get them through a rough time and in the example i gave so they can blossom afterwards so they could yeah. become a better employee than they were before we've even helped them and really sorry about your mum gavin you know really sorry about the diagnosis and and you know you shared it in the newsletter last week and i cried you know i i cried reading it and i think this is one of the interesting things for years and years and years people sort of went to work hung their life up at the door and this other persona came in it's impossible it's absolutely impossible the workplace brought the work home, right? We didn't. Yeah. It was the employer that said, you've got to go home and work now. The employer could have said, stop working. Stop working for three weeks. We'll see what happens with the pandemic. But they didn't. The employer brought work home. Yeah. And we can't then complain when people bring home into work. Precisely. And, and exactly. And we're not robots. Just sort of doing a devil's advocate. And this was, a, this was something that Simon and I were debating quite a bit when we were writing the episode. We always like to look on the other side of the coin and, and play the devil's advocate. So there's great, there's many examples of things that are working, right? And and there's great examples of, of, of programs or whatever it may be. But are there gaps? Are there visible, discernible gaps? You know, you, I know you've been talking a lot with government and parliamentary committees and sharing your opinions. Are there gaps? And as a devil's advocate, are we potentially going too far with the pendulum? Are we be, becoming too soft? potentially with some of the well-being initiatives have we taken it too far um i think it's quite easy for people to think we've taken it too far and there are a couple of talks i've given to the um the uk parliament and um, i'm i'm there again in a few weeks time and yeah i i feel like i'm a dissenting voice every time i speak to <laughs> the, the specific uk government at the time but i think what we have to understand is that the support that was there for most people's parents if you're over the age of 40 now your parents had a lot more state support than people today have under the age of 40. You know, we haven't grown up with a paternal state in the same way that generations before us did. Government support's failing in almost every advanced economy around the world. We've got friends who can't get mental health support on the NHS in the UK for the next six to 12 months. So they're going to their doctor and saying, I've got severe depression, I'm having these dark thoughts, and they're putting them on a waiting list for six months. However, in many cases, I also know a lot of people who if they got that and went to their employer, somebody would see them tomorrow. So suddenly you see these employers that have these mechanisms in place where somebody could actually get access to a counsellor, a mental health nurse, a professional, in person or virtually, immediately. And so I think that's significant for the society. I think employers now have a role to play in people's health and well-being far more than the government does. And this is not just the UK, this is in most countries. So I don't think we've taken it too far. I actually don't think we've probably taken it enough for most organizations. And I think regardless of your opinion on workplace well-being, the evidence to back up the significantly positive organizational impacts of supporting your people is so compelling. I think, frankly, if you're not supporting employee well-being, your organization isn't performing as effectively as it could. And at this point in time, broadly, the more you support your employee well-being, the more likely you are to have happier shareholders, higher profits, better customer loyalty, a bigger and better brand, higher shareholder returns, 
and many other universal measures of organizational success. So there is nobody who does all these things and get themselves into the FTSE 100 who suddenly says, I, I think I did too much. Because the moment you stop doing that, and this is a moving target, the moment you stop, you know, we don't complete well-being. You don't, there's no end point. You don't finish it. No. And because the next pandemic and the cost of living crisis will keep coming, it will have to evolve. And so I don't think people can do too much. And I would argue the toss and share the data with anyone who, uh, who thought that we could, um, we could do too much before we were being too soft. We've talked a lot about well-being at the workplace. What about personal well-being? Is social media a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, terrible. You look at some of the recent data that's come out in the last couple of weeks. They they gave social media in one study to um, to children and monitored them over, I think, a six-month period. And they had a control group that they removed from social media. And the impact was pretty significant. Yeah, a lot of people have said this, but I think we'll look back on social media and think of it the same way as we think of smoking now, which will just this, how do we ever let people do that? This is madness that we even allowed it into people's lives. and But it is, again, it's difficult to, to put yourself away from it. But yeah, like I say, the last couple of months, research has been out there, which really calls into question, you wouldn't let your kids do this, so why do we let ourselves do it? I mean, it could be a force for good as well, though, isn't it? It gives people opportunity to reach out, to talk to other people that are sharing common issues or common problems, for example. So it can be a good thing, but I, but I also reflect on it, it can be a world of darkness and horrible opinions being thrown around as well, can't it? Yeah. And I think if you look at the figures, it's about people are spending on average about five five hours a day kind of on their phones or in social media and stuff. So it's a big portion. I think even um, Tim Cook himself, from the CEO of Apple, said he doesn't let his kids use their iPhones for longer than a few hours a day. And so if the people who are building this tech are saying, I don't trust it, maybe we shouldn't trust it. But I take yes. your point. There is, there's a lot of good, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't for this kind of tech. But I think like with anything, there's just, yeah, we're just going to uh, be a bit careful and find the right balance, I think. On that darkness side, actually, I don't know if I told you this, but I, I like Twitter. I, I, it's a big information source for me. And the, there was a there was a debate, quite a significant debate, about a footballer recently and whether or not his employer should continue to employ him. And I've been quite enthralled by it. And I and I stupidly just intersected where somebody was talking about the law, not whether or not the the footballer should return or or, or anything of that nature. Just just the law. I was just passing a comment, and after two minutes, I thought, oh, do you know what, Michael, delete it. Right, just don't get this debate. And literally within a minute, somebody had screen grabbed my post, come right after me, and I mean really after me. And I got called every bloody name under the sun, and I was like, "Whoa, whoa!" I mean, imagine if you're in the line of that fire every day. Now, interestingly, with this individual, I thought, "No, I'm not going to just go into the the shadows." I I hung my ground, and and I made my point, and I and, and I think eventually he understood what I was trying to do, and he apologised. And we actually ended on good terms. But for that initial moment, I was like, whoa, that's brutal. Just going back to the health insurance, right, for the 6,000 employees, because it feels like a pendulum swing, doesn't it? And what you're saying about the the employee versus the employer. I, I, I can see that value, right, of giving health insurance to those 6,000 employees. I mean, it's an enormous benefit. But to your point, though, you can't just do that. So if they only did that, but the culture wasn't actually inclusive, it wasn't really a growth culture, do you then run the risk as an organisation that people are staying for the benefit and not staying for any other reason? So you've got to get the balance right, Gethin, haven't you? You can't just Absolutely. do one thing and not the other. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, this that example is a company where this is just the icing on the cake of a lot, hey. of, a lot of things they've done really, really well. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There is this careful balance of a lot of things. You know, Simon mentioned leadership. You know, it plays such a big part. I mean, as you mentioned, the, the most progressive company in the world. You could have a horrible manager, and your experience at work and your well-being is is bad because of that. Either the organisation is on paper doing all of the right things, but I think that's why we've got to get away from this fifty-three billion dollar corporate wellness market and think more about if I could build this business again. You know, how would I build it? How am I structuring the organisation? Training managers allowing employees to contribute, listening to what they've got to say, giving them recognition, you know, to put all these different things in place. I mean, one of the things that um, I did to coincide with the latest book was create a tool called the Wellbeing Progress Index, which was basically a set of 200 questions, all based on the evidence that the 600 pieces of evidence I found for the book, which was basically, are you doing this thing? Because if you do it or don't do it, that will determine whether levels of your wellbeing in your organization are higher or lower based on the organization. That is probably 
two-thirds of things you couldn't go out and buy. You couldn't pay somebody to solve that problem for you. You as an organization would have to change the policies you you create, um, how you treat employees, how you communicate to them, how managers are trained, how regular managers have time with their employees. You'd have to do all those different things. Um, and that's a that's a tool free for anyone to use. So they, can, they can kind of contact me and they can use that for free. Um, we, we don't use the data for anything. But that's what people, I think people going through that process then start to understand that this is not just HR's problem because there's questions in their HR can't answer. It's everyone's problem. And even if you do all of the right things and you've still got terrible managers, you won't get this right. And so it's this combination of all these different things that you need to do. And um, and it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of time. And it's a long-term strategy for most organizations. But, you know, well-being is complex. It touches loads of different parts of the employee experience. Everyone has responsibility over it, as Simon said. So that's what people really need to understand is, you know, well-being is, is in the DNA of, of every organization. It's not, it's not a, a, a single strategy owned by one team. Look into the future, obviously full of disruption. And I don't think that's going to end now. I think it's just that that is part of the DNA now, actually, isn't it? Right. I think it's just full of it. So AI is probably the biggest one that's yet to be fully understood. We've had some conversations already, Simon, haven't we? And we're going to have more. Where do you think AI potentially or other innovation will weave its way through into the sphere, if you like, of well-being in the next five to ten years? Uh, so this is a good question because I have a conference talk coming up. By the time this is published, I probably would have done it, so people can probably find it online with investors and the people in the UK about AI's impact on well-being. So I'm right in the middle of all the research at the moment. I found some pretty surprising things, and I think AI will impact well-being in one big way, but I don't think it's a way that's obvious to most people, and I don't see many people talking about it. So with everything I've researched and read at the moment, I think AI will help us take better care of ourselves. I think AI will allow us to take better care of our well-being. And I don't mean the application of AI in healthcare. I mean how AI has the potential to free up time for us. And so I think the promise of historical technological advances were that they will free up time. So the mechanical loom, the motor car, the iPhone, they were all made to make our lives easier and gave us back time. The iPhone alone gives us about 26 days back in things that used to cost admin every year. So it frees up a lot of time for us. And I think AI has the potential to make the four-day working week a reality. I think if you look at most estimations, they suggest the average job across the US, but generally globally as well, the latest research that's come out in the last couple of months in 2023, we will see about 20% of tasks removed by developments in AI in almost every job. And imagine what our life would look like if that advancement meant we could spend more time in nature with our friends, with our families, suddenly life becomes a little bit more livable for people. I think there'll be employers that embrace and realize that by, by taking it that way, they will attract and retain the best people uh, with the best ideas and the best problem-solving capabilities. As we mentioned, if empathy is a core skill, continues to work its way up the list of desirable employee traits, empathy requires us to be able to better take care of ourselves in order to thrive. And I think AI might just give us that. If you could go to your employees now and say, um, we can reduce your product, we can make you... 20% more productive, so you can achieve the same in four days than you could in five, we've got two choices to make. Either we gain another 20% by making them work five days a week, or we get all the benefits that are coming out that we're seeing with some of the trials around the world of getting people to work a four-day working week. Yeah. And so I think it has that potential to really boost well-being uh, for employees if we use it right. Do you think four-day week will become the norm? Absolutely. People argue to and there with me. I'm in 2015, 2016, I was arguing with people at conferences that flexible working and home working would become widespread. And people would literally say it wouldn't work in my organization. And I've gone back to those people post-pandemic and said, how many of your people are still working remotely two years after the pandemic? So I think it will. I think I, I think by, what are we now, 2023, I think by 2030, you will have about 40% of knowledge workers will be working a four-day week. And as soon as that tips the balance, suddenly someone's going to make a decision I can work with that company on the same salary for four days a week or this one for five, and yeah. this one's going to have a waiting list guaranteed. That'll be the, other, that'll be the next pendulum shift. Just very interesting on the topic of empathy very quickly, because we were talking with, this, with Sheila, weren't we, Simon? That she has a very, very big sort of viewpoint on empathy versus compassion. And, and what it is, is, is that to empathize with someone, you need to be able to stand in their shoes or have gone through what they've gone through. And for a lot of managers, that may not be the case. And so for her, hence why I was talking about compassion, compassion is, is can I show care for you, even though I haven't been in your same situation? 
So we were talking about inclusive leadership and, and what does that really mean and what does that really look like? Because there, there has to be that redefining, I think, of that role of the leader. So conscious of the clock, as always. It's been brilliant, Gethin. What would be your takeaways or leave behinds today? What would be your pieces of wisdom, your nuggets, your two or three tips? I think whether you're an employer, a manager, or, or just a colleague, you have to put the people in your organization at the center of what you do. I think a well-supported and cared-for employee will always do more of what's expected of them. An employee, as you both are oh, three of us, I think, know, an employee that uh, is well-supported for and cared through, an employee employer helps you get through a difficult time, uh, yeah. makes us more loyal. We work with these organizations, and we're talking about how great our employers are, right? That's yes. really valuable stuff. An employee who helps solve life problems for will help you solve problems in return. Happy, healthy employees create successful businesses. And while people remain the biggest part and the biggest investment in most organizations, I think those facts will remain. So I think we have to check in on people. We have to ask them what they need. We have to be patient with them. We have to get to know them, to help them, to be there for them. And the evidence from some of the world's largest and most significant studies into workplace well-being, covering millions of employees and millions of data points, goes much further than showing just a correlation between successful teams and organizations and how they support employee well-being. You know, we know that organizations with higher employee well-being outperform their counterparts by about 20%. So if you were the number one FTSE 100 company right now as we speak, and I crunched the numbers before this uh, before this podcast, you'd be adding £44 billion to your bottom line, £44 billion a year by prioritizing employee well-being. And that's just the number company that's number one. And I happen to actually work with them and consult with them regularly, and they do look after employee well-being well. And as many of the FTSE 100 companies do, it's no coincidence that some of the world's best-performing companies also have a very extensive employee well-being strategy in place. So we have to commit more to this. I think we've we've yeah. covered today that managers have a part to play, and I think the more we see the success of an organization tied to employee well-being, the easier it is for us to make decisions, to make investments, to find the resource. It's a moving argument, isn't it? You know, that that's what it is, isn't it? And I think, you know, you've just given another string today that says, say by 2030, if you're not offering the four-day week, but they are on the same salary. And that's the way I think this is going to continue to move. The argument is there. It's very clear. We've learned a lot from the pandemic, but it's not just one thing. It's a holistic thing and many different moving parts. Any job you take today, if you left yours now, you'd get a salary. Every job would pay you a salary. Yeah. So it's, what are you doing above that? Correct. Gethin, thank you. Thank you Thanks so much. Having. A wonderful conversation, many different takeaways, much to think about. And thank you for your disclosure. We wish you very well for the future and to you and your family. Thank you. We'll be back in 2030 to see if I was right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Gethin. Thank you. Simon, it was wonderful to have Gethin back. He lives this topic. He is so prepared. He, he does his research. He doesn't just clutch things out of thin air and he is completely and utterly committed to his work and helping organizations to be better at this. And, you know, what did he say? He was the, the lone dissenting voice in front of government, which is quite telling. Loads of takeaways as always. I had a page full of notes, but I'm going to start with you, uh, kind sir, if I may. What were your takeaways from today? Well, a couple of areas that really stuck out for me. I think the first was the conversation we had employment well-being. But in reality, I think there's also that heavy rela relationship with the manager. And yeah, and the, the manager themselves has to live and breathe those initiatives just as much as the employer has to offer them. Because, yeah, as Gethin observed, you, you can have all of the initiatives out there, but if the manager doesn't buy into them, then you, that, that can be a toxic relationship, which causes you know negative well-being. So I think that the, the manager, you know, we talked about you know listening, observing, we talked about empathizing versus compassion and so on, uh, which again built on a, a previous conversation. I think all those are absolutely crucial, uh, and you know, peers as well. Again, we let, let's you know, the individual within an organization does have a responsibility to watch out for the well-being of others. I, I believe. But secondly, I, I mean, I must admit, I was very inspired by his vision for the future. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's not just another couple of. Um, things that's going to be tagged on to an already burgeoning bag of apps that we've already got, you know, looking after well-being. But it, it's his research was showing there that the AI will take away uh, things from our workday, which frees us up time to have more time for well-being. And here we got into that four-day versus five-day conversation. Mm. 
And I guess that will work for some, maybe most. But for some, it will then be a question of, well, what do I do with that time? Yes. <laughs> yeah, some employers will, will fill that time with other stuff. Yeah. And some people may not want the extra day. They might may enjoy the work. It, having more time doesn't always lead to, to well-being. But I think for the vast majority, the choice between a four-day week and a five-day week is a bit of a no-brainer. So, you know, it's got to be a good thing. Yeah. I wrote down very early in the conversation level of seriousness. It also got me thinking about authentic. And is is that really where we're at? You know, you either care or you don't, or you're either genuine or you're not, or you're either committed or you're not. There's no, there's almost, there's no halfway house. And I think he gave example, I think when we finished the recording of an organization that employed somebody in a senior wellbeing role who had never, ever held a, 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 a similar role like it. So it was almost lip service, you know. We talked about a couple of examples, didn't we? You know, you either come going, I'm going off work, but, you know, please do all this stuff before you go or coming back from work and suddenly dropping things on you. And it's that level of seriousness and commitment to saying, actually, that's not how it should work. Exactly. I think I think we've made great strides. It was interesting. You and I were debating the question, what is well-being today? And you were a bit like, well, let's assume people know it. And Gethin was saying, that's the question I'm asked all the time. So I think there is that still a redefining. But the pendulum shift towards the employee coming through the pandemic and more of an employee-centered organization, obviously not all employers are like that, the loss of control and, and power. But, but I think that pendulum shift is there. It is still very holistic, though. It can't just be, as you said, the programs if the managers aren't on board, or it can't be this if that's not working. It can't just be one thing. That raising example of the, the organization that give health insurance to 6,000 employees, I was immediately thinking, if that's the only thing they've done, and of course, Gethin said it wasn't, but if it was, then it, it may not work. But I think the last one, linking into the AI a little bit, but also talking about talking about the app that they will be releasing later this year, it's the small things that we all can do ourselves. Five minutes of mindfulness, uh, a short walk over lunch for 20 minutes, um, just to improve our own well-being. So it's almost like our own skin in the game. Because I think the danger is, is that we don't do those small things. And certainly that's something that I've learned, you know, while I've been poorly. What helped was the fact that there is research that backs this up. You know, it sounds a small thing, taking five minutes here or doing something, you know, taking a short walk over there in the workday or, you know, whatever it may be, or offering this initiative out in the workplace. But the research backs it up. He gave the examples of, you know, the increase in productivity if you take that five minutes or the, you know, the top employer, top FTSE uh, organization out there could add 44 you know, billion pounds to their, yeah. to their revenue. I mean, yeah. this is this is not something to be dismissed. You know, no. the research is categorically there to show this makes a difference. Yeah, but it's brittle. I think that's my feeling. It's quite brittle now. And I think, you know, there's a perception point of whether I stay, I'm committed, I'm not committed, I go somewhere else. And it was very telling that people left and went to completely different industries during the pandemic or indeed left without a job because they were just making a determination of, is this... Or is this the right organization for me? And does the organization care about me? And not to repeat stuff that we've covered before, but it is pretty binary. So great conversation. I, I feel quite reflective, if I'm honest with you, Simon. So we move on, we move forward. And I hope that I hope people listening into this will take a moment to pause, reflect like we are and think about what they can do for others themselves in their own organizations. I think that's another big takeaway as well. But anyway, Simon, thank you as always. Until the next time, goodbye.